If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Hello and welcome to the first part of BBC History Magazine's February 2009 podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove and I'm the acting editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, section editor of the magazine. Coming up in this podcast... The earlier battles at Isamwana and Rourke Strip have pretty much obscured just about everything else that happens in the war. That was Professor Saul David on the Zulu Wars... These bases were designed as a male retreat from the sometimes turbulent family life um, as a Victorian home. That was curator Dr Jane Hamlet on Victorian men in the home. I think he does deserve what is a regular accolade of being either top or second in the list of historians' great presidents of all time. And that was Professor Carwardine on Abraham Lincoln. We'll hear more on these topics in a moment. And of course, they're explored in the February 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which has a dramatic painting of the Zulu Wars Battle of Alundi on the cover. If you're not familiar with the magazine, it's produced by BBC magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast. Now, our lead feature this month takes an in-depth look at the 1879 Zulu War. Historian Saul David argues that the fascination with the battles at Rourke's Drift and Isalwana have obscured other equally important clashes in the 19th century conflict. Saul David is Professor of War Studies at the University of Buckingham, and he spoke to me earlier about the forgotten battles at Lobain and Kambula, which played a key role in an eventual British victory. 
Would you mind giving a bit of background as to how the Zulu Wars began? Zulu Wars is quite interesting. They're like a lot of the imperial conflicts I've studied of the 19th century. Your first impression is, well, it must be some sort of guiding policy that drives the empire, the expansion of empire forward. But actually, in many cases, of course, they start on the ground. In other words, it's the uh, the local officials, either military or, or civil in this case, who are actually um, setting the agenda. And this particular character is a man called Sir Bartle Frere. And he's been sent out to South Africa with this specific task of achieving a conf- Federation of Southern Africa, which it is assumed will be of benefit to the empire, not only for trade, but also for security. In other words, it will be able to run its own security and it'll relieve the financial pressure from Britain. So that's his job. And when he gets there, he realizes that to meld together this complete hodgepodge of Boer republics, which aren't under our control, British crown colonies, which are including Natal and the Cape Colony, and also, of course, a number of, of African states, including Zululand. And Zululand is, is seen as the most dangerous in the sense that it's got the biggest army, a very militarized state that is a tremendously um, powerful military power, and that to achieve confederation, particularly to bring the Boers into line, the Boers of the Transvaal um, province, he needs to neutralize Zululand. And so it's really a decision that has got nothing to do with the specific threat Zululand is posing to crown colonies at that time. It's, it's got to do with strategy, and he, and he sees that he needs to neutralize Zululand if he is to achieve confederation, and he's been off a peerage, so there's a kind of personal element uh, involved in all of this. And so he sets in train a sequence of events that inevitably leads to the outbreak of the Zulu War, chiefly among them being the imposition of a, an ultimatum to the Zulu king, which he knows the Zulu king cannot accept. Terms like the disbandment of the Zulu army, which is pretty much what keeps the Zulu king in power. And at the expiry of the ultimatum, the 30-day expiry, which uh, happens to be the 11th of January 1879, uh, that is officially when the Zulu War begins. In the feature that you've written for the magazine, you focus on two battles in the Zulu Wars, um, Chlobain and Kambula. What was the significance of these battles? Well, I think that Chlobain and Kambula very much are the forgotten battles of the Zulu War, and there's uh, one good reason for this, and that is that the earlier battles, the battles right at the outset of the war that took place on the 22nd, 23rd of January at Isamwana and Rourke's Drift, have pretty much obscured just about everything else that happens in the war. Now, there's a very good reason for this, and that is that Isamwana was a terrible British defeat, and Rorkstriff was apparently a great British victory. Now, when you actually look at those two battles side by side, you realize that, yes, Isamwana was a bad defeat, but Rorkstriff was relatively minor action. But it's blown out of all proportion, both in the minds of the public and also, to a certain extent, to historians, by the then British commander, Lord Chelmsford, who's responsible for the defeat of Islamwana. And, of course, he's very delighted that, luckily for him, this side action has, has been fought, which enables him to obscure the effect, really, of the disaster. And also, he hopes, will prevent him from being recalled back to Britain. And so he hypes up hugely the importance of Rorkstrift, saying that, but for the defence of Rorkstrift, Natal, the province of Natal, the crown colony of Natal, would have fallen to the Zulus, which is complete nonsense, because... Um, King Chichwaya, the Zulu king, had always insisted that his commanders didn't actually invade Natal, and for them even to go as far as Rorke's Drift was beyond the orders they'd been given. But Chumps had realised the importance of Finn, of PR, and uh, it's another reason why so many VCs were given out for Rorke's Drift, 11 VCs more than for any other single action in the history of the British army, and, and that is because he wanted to make 
it seem like it was a big deal. That's not to say there weren't some extraordinarily heroic acts undertaken at Rourke's trip, but 11 VCs for a total garrison of 140 men, or 1 in 10, a little bit um, over the top, in, in my opinion, and also in the opinion of people at the time, including the Duke of Cambridge, the commander-in-chief of the British Army. So these two battles have been built up hugely by Lord Chelmsford, in particular Rourke's Drift, and pretty much everything else that comes after that is obscured by the oxygen of publicity that Chelmsford has been given to these two battles. Now, the reason I feel that Lobain and Kambula in particular deserve some recognition is because they were really the battles on which the ultimate outcome of the Zulu War, rather than specific actions or even campaigns, they were the battles on which the outcome of the Zulu War really hinged. This was the great turning point of the war, and Kambula in particular, which was the great British victory against the main Zulu army, which was undefeated at this at this point, really broke the spirit of the Zulu army. And we know this not only because it never fought as well again, but also because Zulus who fought in the final battle of Ulundi pretty much said, said that. They said that after Kambula, our spirit was gone. And so these two battles, which are extraordinary in their own right, not least because the commanders who, who were in charge of them, men called um, Ethan Wood and Reavers Buller, who become great figures in the British Army and go on to, you know, the highest command ultimately. Their roles in these battles have pretty much been forgotten because of, as I said, the earlier battles really pretty much obscuring what went on thereafter. Would you say these two battles were therefore more important than the more famous two that came earlier? I suppose the overall point to make is that during the course of a campaign, all battles are important in one shape or form. I mean, Islam 1 is undoubtedly a very important battle because it's a huge defeat for the British army, not only in the course of that campaign, but also in the context of 19th century British warfare. The only uh, campaign you've got to compare to it was the retreat from Kabul, the disastrous retreat from Kabul in 1842. And those two are the kind of standout British defeats against technologically inferior foe that occurred during the 19th century. So it is important in in that sense, but is it important in terms of the ultimate outcome of the Zulu War? Well, not as much as Kambula in particular, and Kambula and Lobain, the twin battles that take place a couple of months later, really are the key to understanding why the Zulus ultimately lost the Zulu War. So, in other words, it's important to understand the relevance of all the battles, but the problem with the Zulu War is that it's really become crystallized in the minds of the viewing public down to simply two battles and those are Rourke's Drift and Islam Wana. and of course Chelmsford was partly to blame but the other key factor is is the fact that two feature films were made in the 20th century two very popular feature films one in particular and that of course is Zulu which depicts the events of Rourke's Drift because of that people very much have the image of the Zulu war being that one single action and of course it will be remembered and still is remembered because it was the action at which most VCs were won so films like Zulu actually have been misinforming the public, perhaps, about the Zulu Wars? I think we'd be slightly naive to imagine that feature films of historical moments, historical battles, are going to be accurate. There is certainly a lot of licence taken with all feature films. The problem with the film Zulu in relation to the Zulu War is that it very much gives you the idea that the war was almost won and lost in that particular moment of Rourke's Drift. In truth, those events were at the outset of the war, and of course there was much fighting to be done thereafter. And if you'd simply watched Zulu, you might have got the feeling that actually that was where we got our revenge from Islam Wana. Not true at all. Whether we really get our revenge for Islam Wana, where the British really get the revenge for Islam Wana, is at the Battle of Kambula, where the spirit of the Zulu army is broken forever. And who were the heroes to the Battle of Kambula? 
two heroes of the Battle of Kambula are the British commanders. I mean, there were many heroes, of course. There were many, many individual soldiers and, and junior officers. But the two guiding lights behind the battle, the men whose spirit really ensures a great British victory, are the commander himself, Brigadier Evelyn Wood, and his deputy, Colonel Reavers Buller. And these two men go on to climb to the very highest reaches of the British Army. Evelyn Wood goes on to become a field marshal and second in command of the British Army. And Buller goes on to command when the British eventually go back to South Africa 25 years later and uh, he commands at the outset of the Boer War. But never, unfortunately, with the same brio he showed during this earlier stage in his career, particularly the fighting during the Zulu War. And some people have suggested, and I think there may be some truth in this, that Buller was a fabulous colonel, a less effective brigadier, and a really second-rate general. And that sometimes happens when you give very brave and very capable soldiers too much responsibility. Had they learned the lessons of previous defeats against the Zulus? Well, I think in many ways, Kambula and Lobain mirror the earlier twin battles of Istanbana and um, Rorkstift in the sense that Lobain's a defeat and Kambula's a victory. But where they certainly learned the lesson of the disaster at Istanbana is that they realised if you're going to take on a large Zulu army, the best thing to do is make sure you've got barricades to fight behind. Now, they had barricades at Rorksdrift and they proved to be very effective. They had no barricades at Isamwana because the army under Lord Chancellor was far too arrogant to think it required them. But that was certainly a lesson that Evelyn Wood had learned. And when the actual fighting takes place at Kambula on the 29th of March, 1879, it's behind incredibly strong defences. They not only have lagers there, they've also built entrenchments so that you've got this double defensive situation which is pretty nigh impregnable. And that pretty much shows itself in the casualties that are actually uh, incurred at Kambula. Only 18 Europeans are killed and yet 2,000 Zulus are killed. Now, if you compare that to Islamwana, where 1,300 Europeans and African auxiliaries on the British side are killed, you get a sense of the different tactics that the British are using and, and the fact that they're able to reduce casualties as a result of that. Now, you've recently written your first novel, Zulu Heart, which is set during the Zulu Wars. How did the experience of writing that differ from writing your straight history books? Well, I think the great pleasure in writing a historical novel connected to um, a period of history that I knew an awful lot of detail about is that although historians can discover all kinds of fascinating documents that lead them to make certain conclusions about what went on in the past, they can never get inside people's heads unless they actually have a bit of evidence to do so. In other words, it's very difficult to say exactly what was going on in Lord Chelmsford's mind the day he led his troops out of Istanbul and therefore partly caused the disaster that day. What you can do in fiction is pretty much put yourself in the head of, of a historical figure. So in many ways, it, it frees up the historian and enables him to follow his instinct. Why did the um, disasters happen at Islamwana and later on in other battles in the Zulu Wars? Well, we don't know for sure. We've got a pretty good idea. But what you can do in fiction is make those assumptions and make them come true. And, and of course, there are many unexplained things that happen, not just in battles, but also in history in general. And, and fiction allows you to play around with that to a certain extent. I think the danger, of course, is to move too far off what we know actually happened. Particularly if you're dealing with real historical figures, you should never really go beyond the point of allowing them to say or do things that either we know they said or did or that we know there's a pretty good chance they might have done, given their characters. So quite important not to take liberties with history, but a great freedom to allow you to play around with it nonetheless. Do you think that your book will ignite interest in readers to find out more about the history of the wars? 
I think one of the key aspects of historical fiction, much uh, underestimated by people who say, well, of course, you know, that's not what actually happened. It's just a story set in those events. Is that in reality, it's a much more user-friendly form of acquiring historical information. Now, I would hate to think that anyone would just want to read historical fiction. And I know for a fact that a number of people who've read my history books also read historical fiction. You often come across people who say, oh, yes, well, I love Flashman books, but I also love history. And I think, I think there can be an interchange between the two and if someone for the first time comes across a story like the Zulu Wars and is fascinated by it because they've read it in fiction which is a, a slightly easier slightly more reader-friendly way to be introduced to a historical period I think there's a very good chance they might want to go on and learn a little bit more and that's one of the reasons why at the end of my historical novel Zulu Heart I've got a list of further reading and I'm amazed that you don't see this more often in, in works of historical fiction. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Saul David is Professor of War Studies at the University of Buckingham. His debut novel, Zulu Heart, will be published by Hodder on 5th of March. Now, in a moment, I'll be talking about Choosing the Chintz, the latest exhibition at the Jeffrey Museum in London. But first, here's Rob to tell you how you can subscribe to BBC History magazine. Yes, Sue, we have a great subscription offer this month. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 24th of February this year will receive 12 issues for the price of nine, and that works out at just £2.70 per issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or you can call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD0209. And if you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be delighted to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus 44 1795 44728 for details. Now, the Victorian wife, or at least the middle-class wife, is often portrayed as the angel in the house, exercising a rule of iron over the daily running of the household, while the stern paterfamilias occupies himself with more serious matters. Well, now a new exhibition at the Jeffrey Museum shows that Victorian middle-class men were actually really rather interested in household decoration and surprisingly happy to talk soft furnishings. Jane Hamlet is one of the curators of the exhibition, and I spoke to her on the phone from there. 
So it turns out that Victorian men were actually quite enthusiastic decorators. I think for a long time we've really focused on women's role in the home. And this is really because during the 19th century, middle-class women were, for the most part, expected to stay at home and to maintain it for their husbands and also for the social standing of their family. So really historians have tended to focus on this link between women and domesticity. And I think this really led us to neglect somewhat the role that men played. And although men were, um, of course, not as heavily involved in home management as women were, they were interested in how the home was laid out. They were interested in its furnishings and um, how it might appear. And presumably at this time there were a lot more products around, um, you know, factory-produced products that they could take advantage of as well um, in order to furnish their homes. Was that a factor? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think um, from the middle of the 19th century, um, there's a growth in mass production of pretty much everything, and that includes furniture and goods for the home. So, yes, so there are more things available to furnish the home. I think we also have to remember that... Um, as the middle class expands and grows more wealthy, um, they all, um, there's also a growth in the amount of disposable income um, that um, these middle class families have to spend on their homes. And of course, one final factor is, of course, the gradual expansion of domestic service to the home, which means that more um, help is available, as it were, to service the home and to um, make sure that um, it's maintained to the standards that these middle class families require. Now, in the feature that you've written for the magazine uh, this month, one of the things you also talk about is the idea of a male space within the home. What do we mean by that? During the late 19th century in particular, middle-class houses were often divided between men and women. In a typical middle-class house, you might expect to find a drawing room and a dining room. Now, the drawing room was associated with women and femininity, and the dining room was associated with men and masculinity. Now, this is partly because of the widespread practice in this period um, of the women withdrawing from the dining room after dinner and leaving the men there to pursue their conversation, which perhaps might um, be a little bit insalubrious or might involve topics that um, the women were not supposed to hear. So there was this social practice um, which involved the women leaving the men in the dining room whilst they went into the drawing room. And so these two spaces were associated with masculinity and femininity. And the drawing room was thus decorated in often in a light and feminine manner. It might have a floral wallpaper um, or perhaps be quite heavily ornamented. In contrast, um, the dining room was often decorated in a more masculine fashion, i.e. it would have been decorated in darker colours and also might have been furnished more heavily, perhaps using a wood such as oak. And presumably in the um, rather larger houses, there were other male spaces. In upper middle class houses, where families had more space to play with, um, there might have been other male spaces such as a library, um, a study or a den, or a billiard room. And again, these spaces were often expected to be decorated in darker colours and with heavier furniture. And billiard rooms in particular often featured tokens of a hunt. So you might get um, a bearskin rug or perhaps some stag's heads displayed on the wall. Do you think that these were these male spaces were retreats where children were not supposed to go and the men could get on with the important stuff of uh, having a good conversation about um, putting the world to rights, etc.? To a certain extent, these spaces were designed as a male retreat from the sometimes turbulent family life um, as a Victorian home. 
And some writers argue that actually some of the rituals of the home in this period became increasingly dominated by women. For example, the five o'clock tea that took place um, every day in the drawing room. And it's been suggested that actually perhaps these rituals were a little bit oppressive to men and they felt that they had to you know, really carve out their own spaces in the home where they could be perhaps a bit more masculine. However, I think when we come to look at the way in which the Victorians lived their day-to-day lives in these spaces, it was actually quite hard to maintain these distinctions. And if we look closely at diaries and autobiographies, we often find that children might well play in the library, or um, whole families might sometimes use libraries or studies in the evenings. Uh, And so really often, although these male spaces might have been designed to allow men to escape their families, I don't think this kind of uh, worked terribly effectively in practice. Now, one thing that did cause a little bit of uh, friction in households could be the idea of smoking. Certainly amongst domestic advice writers in the late 19th century, there was a debate over smoking in the home. Now, um, smoking became more popular in the 19th century. It became cheaper and more widespread. And it was primarily a male practice. A few women did smoke, but this was generally frowned upon and it was seen as a masculine activity. Smoking itself was, of course, quite harmful to the home because, as I'm sure you know, smoking leaves quite a distinctive smell and this could cling to fabrics and heavy curtains and could be really quite detrimental to the Victorian domestic interior. Some male domestic advice writers argued that really men should have a separate space within the home where they could go and smoke, where they could be at peace away from their families and the trouble of work, um, but um, also where, you know, the snake would not affect the rest of the house. However, some female advice writers, for example, Jane Ellen Panton, um, were really dead set against smoking in the home. And, for example, Panton suggests that smoking should really only be practised in liminal areas of home, perhaps on porches or balconies. And apart from that, she really thought that it ought to be banned. So um, we've come full circle, really. Um, Now, what about bedrooms? Were they feminine spaces or male spaces? Ah, well, bedrooms are quite interesting. They weren't necessarily decorated in a feminine or masculine fashion. But again, um, I think we can see that they perhaps were more of a woman's territory than a man's. That was quite common um, in upper-middle-class homes and, you know, these families which had a bit more money to spend on their spaces for marital couples to occupy a bedroom um, with a dressing room attached. Now, the dressing room would be for the man. That would be where he would dress in the mornings, leaving the bedroom space to the woman. Now, this is very interesting, partly because it shows a certain degree of privacy within marital relations. So Victorian men and women were dressing in separate spaces, which is also quite interesting. But it's also um, of of great practical value because certainly in the sort of mid-century period, women would have required quite a lot of space to dress. If you think about um, trying to get the crinoline, um, it's not really possible to do that in a small space. So, So these spaces also had a practical use. Now, you talked about uh, domestic advice manuals, and there was one in particular called Hints on Household Taste from 1868. Could you tell us a little more about that one? Yes, that's right. And that was by um, Charles Eastlake, who was a leading authority on domestic decoration in this period. Now, Eastlake was really responding to the taste in the Victorian homes he saw around him. And generally, he was quite disapproving of this. And um, perhaps if if we think of the um, very often very heavily laden, highly ornamented Victorian interiors we're familiar with, we can perhaps see why. 
So Eastlake um, really tended to blame undereducated women for some of these bad decorative decisions. In particular, he focused on young ladies who he believed know what they like but had not been properly educated. And he also railed against um, mothers, the Victorian native familias, who he believed was all too easily swayed by salesmen into making, again, bad judgments. Within his book, Hints on Household Taste, Eastlake was really quite critical of female taste. However, um, interestingly, when Eastlake came to write a different book towards the end of the 19th century, much later, he reflected humorously on his own family relationships. And um, interestingly, although he had these very firm ideas about how a house should be decorated, he often came into conflict with his wife, who he complained um, was rather too fond of ornaments and would scatter these across the house and um, insisted on placing them sort of all over the drawing room and the bedroom. So it's quite interesting to see that although Eastlake held these very firm views, he actually wasn't able to entirely control the look of his own home. Um, and I think the argument about ornaments is one that uh, still goes on today. Now that brings me to the exhibition, because the exhibition doesn't just talk about the Victorians, does it? It, it brings it all much more up to date. Um, that's right. Um, we start off with looking at Victorian men and um, the role they played in the home, some of the things we've been talking about today. And we also look at the way in which space was divided between men and women in the Victorian home. But we move on to that um, to consider um, how things changed in the early 20th century and how women became how women took on a greater role in household consumption in that period. And we also um, bring the exhibition up to the present day. We've got some interviews and photographs of contemporary homes where we look at how men and women continue to wrangle over domestic decoration in our own times. Jane, that's fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jane's also working on a book called Material Relations, Middle Class Families and Domestic Interiors in England, 1850 to 1910. Um, and we look forward to that next year when it comes out. And you can find out more by reading Jane's feature in the February issue of BBC History magazine or by going to the exhibition. Choosing the Chintz is on at the Jeffrey Museum in London until 22nd of February 2009. And on the topic of places to go, here's news of another exciting event. There's been a lot of media attention lately when the official 1911 census of England and Wales went online, making it much easier to trace your family tree. If this is something you've always fancied doing, we've got a date for your diary, the Who Do You Think You Are live show. The annual extravaganza takes place at Olympia in London from 27th of Feb to 1st of March 2009. The TV chef Ainsley Harriet is just one of the celebrities who will be discussing his family history at this year's event. For tickets and more information, please call 0844 412 4629 or visit the website at www.whodoyouthinkyouarelive.co.uk And if you quote History Offer, you can buy two adult tickets for the price of one, that's £20, and this offer closes 20th of Feb. Now, this month is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, the American president who triumphed in the Civil War and emancipated the country's slaves. In the February issue of the magazine, Professor Richard Carwardine assessed Lincoln's legacy, and I spoke to him about why Lincoln remains such a popular figure today and whether comparisons can be drawn between him and the new man in the White House, Barack Obama. Professor Carwardine is Rhodes Professor of American History at the University of Oxford, and I spoke to him on the phone from there. Abraham Lincoln is arguably the most respected American president ever around the world. Do you think he deserves his great reputation? 
Yes, I do. He is an iconic mythic figure, and if you stand and admire the Daniel French uh, statue in Washington, he comes across as this larger-than-life godlike figure, and clearly there is a large element of romanticism and indeed possibly sentimentality in much of the appreciation of Lincoln. Obviously the man who, who is killed by an assassin's bullet in uh, the moment of his triumph, victory in uh, the Civil War in April of 1865, in a sense goes out at the best moment and is likely to be sanctified and canonized. But I do think that the human individual within that marble statue really is a, a great figure. I think for a number of reasons which I could elaborate on, but in in summary, I think he he had a combination of extraordinary uh, political skill, a very good temperament. He was was never rushed into judgment or into a decision. And I think he had a vision. He had a sense as to what he wanted to achieve in his political life. Uh, He was uh, very single-minded in pursuing what he judged to be in the best interests of both his party and his country. So I, I think he does deserve what is, I suppose, this regular accolade of being either top or second in the list of historians, great presidents of all time. So he and Washington sort of fight it out, really, for the top spot. But I think in recent polls, Lincoln has routinely come top. And this is top of polls that are really the result of consulting widely amongst professional historians um, who are, n- are not always a pushover when it comes to this sort of accolade. Do you believe that people nowadays have an inaccurate view of Lincoln? Well, I wonder really what sort of view of Lincoln people have outside the United States. There have been times since his death where he has been widely appreciated and uh, indeed even sanctified outside the United States. I'm not sure that he any longer has that kind of purchase on the international imagination. I guess that if you were looking for the real icons of the recent American past, it would be um, Martin Luther King or Boston be John Kennedy. Um, I think Kennedy was a much lesser president than, than Lincoln. But Lincoln, I think, is probably not someone who has a wide degree of recognition beyond the stovepipe hat and, uh, and the beard and uh, possibly a recollection of some of his more famous uh, sayings, both witty and, and serious, some of, some of his uh, political epigrams. But I think within the United States, however, Lincoln is widely appreciated and widely understood. Certainly not universally so. I think uh, even today within portions of the old white south, the attitude towards Lincoln is one of rather less than rapture. There's a sense he is still the president who uh, subdued and oppressed uh, the independent confederacy. But actually beyond that part of the United States, I think Lincoln is widely regarded as a figure of real substance and wisdom and perhaps overestimated in the sense that there's a sense in the United States that the recent generations of political leaders have simply not been up to the job. I think one of the reasons why biographies of the founding fathers of John Adams and George Washington and Madison and indeed Andrew Jackson and certainly of Lincoln, why biographical studies of these figures sell so well is because there's a sense in which they uh, represent what American political leadership could be and should be and not what it is. I think ever since Watergate, since the 1970s, there's been a cynicism and a skepticism about American political leadership not consistently so. I think Ronald Reagan did something to lift the appreciation of American political leaders, rightly or wrongly. Clinton clearly had a successful presidency in some respects, but obviously it was tarnished by his 
personal shenanigans. Bush's presidency marks a low point in terms of public estimation of leaders. So figures like Lincoln are really attractive to the, the broader public, and I suppose to that extent their skills and their wisdom overestimated. But I still persist in seeing Lincoln as a, a man of extraordinary uh, abilities, in some respects a political genius, certainly a man of, of unique abilities. Not the only person, perhaps, who could have led the uh, Union to victory in, in the Civil War, but certainly someone whose skills were essential to the victory of the Union in the war, and indeed to the, the emancipation of slaves. And do you believe that his untimely death has helped preserve his reputation? Oh, certainly. I don't want to be too flippant about it, but I do think that assassination doesn't half help secure a political reputation. John Kennedy's assassination obviously cruelly ended a presidency which still had much to achieve and might well have achieved very much. But when you look coldly at the record of the Kennedy administration through to November of 1963, there isn't an enormous amount to show. What there was was promise and a style and a mood that the young Kennedy presented and was very important. Important, I think, to the shaping of the larger political environment. In the case of Lincoln, there's absolutely no doubt that dying when he did at the hands of an assassin at the time when he had just a few days earlier learned of the surrender of the Confederate army under Lee to Ulysses S. Grant and was now being fated in Washington as the saviour of the Union. There's no doubt that that was the moment when his reputation and historical reputation were at their highest. I think had he lived to serve out the second term, he would have been confronted with really profound problems of reconstruction, how to integrate into the nation four million freedmen and women, how to adjust black and white in a society where the black race had historically either been enslaved or even if free, uh, held a subordinate position. And there were, of course, substantial issues of not only racial readjustment, but actually of economic and, and social reconstruction in a devastated South and of reintegrating the white South into the nation. A huge problem, huge task, which I think no single presidential administration could satisfactorily have solved. It, it, it would have taken several Lincolns to have brought the South faster to its uh, late 20th century reintegration into the nation. It would have taken several wise presidencies, as it were, to have brought that to a, an earlier conclusion. So Lincoln was spared, you might say, the huge task of reconstruction. I think he would have made a much better fist of it than his uh, successor, Andrew Johnson, his vice president. President Johnson really antagonized the uh, radicals in the Republican Party. Johnson, of course, had no political capital. Uh, he was not an elected president. He was not the president that had won the war. Lincoln would have had all of that. He would have had a lot of leverage over his party. He would have had all the cachet that came from being a successful war leader. But even in those circumstances, it seems to me, he would have had profound difficulties. He would have faced real problems. Uh, so yes, his assassination certainly served his historical reputation extremely well. Tragic though it was uh, for the nation at the time. Do you think there are any parallels that can be drawn with, between Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama? I, I think there are undoubtedly similarities beyond the fact that they are both as someone put it, skinny lawyers from Illinois. Uh, neither of them in 
taking office and becoming president-elect could point to any experience, any significant experience of executive or administrative authority or of uh, taking a role as a leader, even in a non-political way. Lincoln uh, had been a party leader in Illinois, but he'd not exercised executive authority. And the same can be said of Barack Obama. He doesn't have executive experience. They both seem to me to uh, evince an impressive poise. They are neither of them impetuous individuals. They both use language very carefully and with a great attention to nuance. They're not rushed into speaking before they've thought. And I think it's too soon to say how well Barack Obama will perform as president. But it does seem to me that the experience of the campaign itself, rigorous and arduous campaign, has tested him in important ways. He has not been ruffled. He has shown good judgment. He has put in place around him a team of really very able people. He's made good selections and good choices. These are exactly the features that mark Uh, Lincoln's progress to power. And I think the auguries are good that um, Obama is a man of some wisdom and wise judgment. But of course, only time will tell whether he, when tested in the fire of office, is going really to be up to it in the way in which Lincoln proved himself able to to respond to events with such uh, maturity of judgment. Not that Lincoln at the time was seen as uh, he was a subject of considerable criticism at the time, but I think there's no doubt at all when you look back on what Lincoln achieved that he was a person of great wisdom, that he was not bullied into taking positions um, that he believed would undermine the larger strategy. And um, we have to wait and see whether Obama is cut from the same cloth. But I think the signs are that he is someone who has a sense of the bigger picture, is ready to appeal to people's hopes and not to their fears. He uses Lincolnian language, not, I think, simply to be likened to Lincoln, but because I think he genuinely believes in what he takes to be um, Lincolnian values and uh, Lincolnian qualities. Finally, 200 years after his birth, how do you think we should be commemorating Abraham Lincoln now? Well, that's a very nice question. Of course, he is going to be commemorated in all sorts of ways. But I think the way that we should commemorate him is by remembering two things. I don't think we we need to dwell on the detail of the means by which he brought the Union back together or the means by which he worked towards emancipation. I think we should concentrate on two things. One is on the bigger ideas and on the values that he espoused. Democratic, a faith in an educated public a belief that if you educated people, you could rely on their best instincts. It's a generous approach to political organization, political activity. So the ideas, I think, are there to be commemorated and to be remembered. And they are, of course, wonderfully set out in the Gettysburg Address and in other great addresses. And that leads me to, to a second point, which is that I think we should remember him as someone who was a great communicator and a great user of language. His writings and his speeches at the time were wonderfully down to earth. They were far less elevated and far less oratorical than many of his rather more flowery contemporaries. But he spoke to people in a language which they understood. And at times, of course, he he was capable of the most astonishing oratory, um, some really resounding phrases. So I think we should commemorate his ideas, and I think we should look carefully at the language and appreciate the language that he used. 
Richard Carradine's biography called Lincoln Profiles in Power was published by Longman in 2003. And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our other features, do look out for the February issue of the magazine. And don't forget to subscribe to the mag or for downloads of previous podcasts, just go to our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Thank you.